This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're catching up with Jared and Emma Amory. Jared and his wife Emma are a super positive duo who somehow managed to keep up with six lively kids. On top of that, they also own and lease more than 6,500 acres around Forbes in central New South Wales. Their mixed farming enterprise focuses on trading sheep, winter crops and fodder production. In this episode, you'll hear how Jared went from being a local shearer to securing his dream farm. But as Jared and Emma describe, this journey wasn't always without its challenges. It's taken a lot of hard work, a can-do attitude, and most importantly, some well-timed decisions. Local Land Services District Vet Jill Kelly snuck in this chat with Jared and Emma while their kids were happily distracted watching Peppa Pig. Driving in, we were struck by how much work you guys have done. It's obvious you've got, you know, it's really well fenced. You've got things growing up out of the ground everywhere. It's a good season. So can you tell me a bit about the farm? Emma and I, we own about 3,400 acres and we lease a further 3,000. We've got every square inch of the farm under crop this year. There's approximately... 1,300 hectares of wheat, 600 hectares of barley, 450 hectares of canola, roughly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we got in this year. And did you just crop it all to take advantage of the season, considering it rained after the drought? I put my first paddock ever into pasture in 2016, and it was super wet, and then we had some super dries, which probably warped the cross margin badly but the profitability was terrible and i like growing crops so we've got rid of that bit of pasture and we've gone just got the whole place in crop every square inch yeah and so you'll harvest some of that but you also run livestock yeah we run we run livestock we run sheep and trade sheep and we will harvest probably about 96% of the farm, Mm -hmm. approximately. So most of the sheep will be sold by the end of July to enable us to harvest a crop twice in one year. One with meat and the other one with grain. I learnt very early on that less is more. You're better off buying a bit less country and buying quality country. You've got to work with that country for many, many years. And if it's pretty poor country, you're going to get poor results for many, many years. You've um, traded a few places and, and now you trade sheep. When you've worked really hard and you absolutely value the dollar so much and you really understand how hard it is to, to earn a dollar, how does that not hold you back and make you really conservative? Like, how do you still be brave enough to, to take risks and to trade? When we were getting going, we probably did not count the risks as much as we maybe could have or should have 
we flew blind a bit, but if we hadn't taken a risk at the time, we would not even be here having this conversation today in this house. Yeah. Because the way we brought this farm was, we didn't have the money. We did not have the money. Nowhere near enough money, enough equity. We had less than 30% equity, about 20% equity, and the banks won't even think about looking at you until you're at 30% equity. When you're hungry and when you're keen, and when you're desperate, you'll search the earth to try and find an answer. So I went to some solicitors to try and find a way to be able to buy a farm, but not pay for it within a year or two, but pin them down on the price. Because many people have had a lease on a farm with the option to buy, but when the option comes up, the price is negotiable then. I thought, what's the good of that? What if land values go through the roof? So we got a put option on this farm. We agreed at a price and the farmer was happy because it was the price that he was asking. And beggars can't be choosers. So we pretty much said, well, we're gonna pay that price and we're gonna pay you within one year. One thing that we put to him is the year that we use your farm, the year prior of purchasing it, we're gonna lease it off you and pay you not much for it. And he was all right with that because he was making nothing out of it anyway. So we we're very grateful to be able to get a reasonable harvest that year and we just scraped up the money to get in because if we hadn't, if we had to pay the deposit whether we got the place or not and it was 160,000 bucks. So we knew that that year we were gonna shell out 160 grand if we got the place or not. So it was a big risk, but by the time we took over the place, it had gone up about 25%. So if we had waited until 12 months later, the farm would have just got out of reach. Mm. That's one lesson that we've learnt. One lesson that I've learned in life in general is compounding is the most powerful force in creating wealth. And that's what this, this farm's done, it's just, it's a compounding effect. And the ability to be able to invest in assets that appreciate in value will determine your net worth in years to come. So I mean, land appreciates in value, but I also know at the moment trading sheep's a big part of your enterprise and value adding those sheep. Can you tell me a bit about that? The thing about sheep is you can do a trade quick. And when Emma and I first leased that farm, I discovered very quickly, you've got to play the game with as least risk as possible, but also be able to put yourself in a position to make good financial gain at the same time. I remember just buying some really beautiful center plush ewes once. They were beautiful sheep and they were really expensive. And I can't remember, there's about three or 400 of them. And I scanned them and they scanned up at about 85% and I was left with about 50 ewes. And I'm like, no one wants a mob of 50 ewes. And they were too expensive just to send into the sale yards to get the heads cut off. So I thought, what are we gonna do about that? So from now on, what Emma and I have aimed to achieve in most cases is to buy older sheep. We always target older sheep. They've gotta be five and a half years or older in age, preferably have teeth, preferably two score or less, 
preferably 35 mils of wool or more and preferably not from a foot rot prone area because you can get them home, throw them onto some feed, throw the rams in. They're, no one would have kept them for six years if they had never have had a lamb. They join up well. You've paid mutton prices for them. They generally gain 10 kilos in live weight while they visit. So the worst case scenario is you send the ewe back to the sale yards that does not join up and you get your money back, worst case scenario. But we always try to start to buy in February. The hotter the weather, the cheaper the sheep. And we try to get in in that February, March period because mutton is always valued at its worst at that period of time. And mutton always goes up in value in winter. So it's a bit of a no-brainer. If you, you pay $4.50 for a U dress weight and you get to the middle of winter and she's gone to $5.50, $6, it's quite hard to lose on the ewes that scan dry. But the ewes that scan in lamb, just before we go to sell those, we always take the wool off them because people don't value the wool quite often. So we take the wool off them and we also make sure that we scan for twins as well because the higher the rate of twins, the more someone will pay you, more than just wet and drying the sheep. And when someone's looking to buy an old sheep, all they're looking for is the lamb that's inside her. They're pretty much going, well, we can just run this old girl just for eight months, get the lamb out and cash her in. So we've chosen that path with our trading strategy because it's very low risk. Mm. You've obviously worked out a lot about market influences there and time of year and all that sort of stuff. Have you done that solely on your own or have you got um, people that you trust in the industry? When I was 10 years ago, when I was younger, I probably, I didn't seek other people's advice or help enough. So no, I didn't seek much advice from mentors, but it was a lot of trial and error on my behalf. But I've since discovered that there are a lot of smart people out there that could have helped me. You're trading sheep. Now as a vet, I'm, I've got to ask this question. How do you manage your disease and your biosecurity risks with what you're bringing on? Do you look for anything? Do you? Well, you should just shut one eye and don't look. <laughs> That's not what I want to hear. <laughs> That's not true. But then you call the district vet the minute something goes wrong, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we shouldn't name areas, but there are areas that are more prone to foot rot than others. And I bought some sheep that were very good value out of an, this a particular area and got them home and within extremely short time, I just thought they were limping because of the truck drop, the ride on the truck, but found out they had foot rot. So I got the LLS out or whatever it was called at the time and um, Belinda Edmondson came out and uh, we, we discovered that yes, they had foot rot. And I wanted to know because I couldn't stand the thought, it just, made me angry that someone would sell them to me and I thought it's not right for me to pass them on to somebody else. I was like, that's just, that's just not on. So I had 2,000 ewes 
and I lost 50 bucks a head out of those ewes, which was very frustrating because I'm sure the bloke I bought them on would have just sold them on in lamb and took the 100 grand, but I thought my integrity is more important than profit. So we chose that path and from, from then on, I've chosen to do two things. We've attempted to buy sheep out of areas that are unlikely to have foot rot. And the other thing that I've chosen to do, because it was painful, after I got some information from neighbors and smart people, most of them just said, cut your losses, get out of them and start again. And that meant chopping our more to Leicester Rams would pay 1600 bucks for, they got the chop too. So we lost a lot of money. Mm. So what, that's the U strategy. The thing we do now with the Rams is I've discovered if you got $2,000 Rams or $200 Dorset Rams, when you scan them in lamb and sell an old U scanned in lamb, nobody gives a hoot how much you paid for the Ram. So I've got a couple of studs that sell me good genetic rams that have got one ear, one <laughs> eye, three legs, and they're brilliant. They're fantastic rams. Yeah, they, if Ho one, hopefully they've got two testicles. That's probably the most important thing. If one kicks a can, it don't matter. Or if I have another crisis with foot rot, they can just go out the gate. Yeah. So just try, trying to reduce the risks. Very good. So, I reckon you and Em have probably arrived here on this farm as it stopped raining, as it decided to turn the tap off, or not long before that. So, you most of the time you've been here, it's been pretty tough. How have you kept the wheels turning and how have you coped with that? It has been challenging. And I've never... I've been through drought. But that last drought in 1819, which I'm believing is over, was really, really severe. And it was quite taxing as well. Quite taxing on the bank account and on the brain. One thing that was really important to remember in the drought, because the previous drought before, I just remember working so hard, so physically hard to compensate for the lack of funds that were getting out of the farm. I was off farm working so hard. And I remember a man that I respected a lot, he had the guts to say to me, Jared, if you continue at this pace, you're not gonna enjoy your family. And I just, I never forgot that. I never forgot that. That sort of hit me, hit me between the eyes. So this drought, I was fully aware. I was like, I don't care what happens to our bank account, my family comes first. So we always, we always did things together and we even went on a holiday. And I was like, how are we gonna go on this holiday? What are we gonna do? It sounds extravagant. So I looked at some crap house caravans and I was like, nah, <laughs> this is not gonna work. So we found this absolutely awesome caravan for 38,000 bucks. We went on a five-week holiday around up through Hella Springs, climbed Ayers Rock, this is only less than a year ago. We got home, the week we got home, we sold it for $100 less than what we'd pay for it. Beauty. And it cost us $2 a night in accommodation, 
So these were some of the lessons that I'd learned through the drought and some of the ways that we handled the family aspect and the mental drain of the drought. Yeah. And so you sold stock to allow you to do that so you didn't have to feed things at home. That's correct, Julian. And we have a policy that we generally abide by that says we have no stock on the farm come August. Because getting back to sheep trading, spring in sheep trading is the riskiest time to trade because it'll either go hugely up as we get a wet spring or hugely down in a dry spring. And those variabilities are too risky for someone like myself to take on. So I prefer to have them grazing on a crop that you could lock up and harvest for grain at the end. So we had no, virtually no sheep in the drought, but we did have some sheep feed in the drought from failed crops. So we did buy some very young class breeders, some young Merino ewes and first cross ewes are only six, seven months of age because I thought to myself, if I can just run these ewes around, which only eat half the amount of a big ewe, when I get out the other side, it's gonna be a bit of a kickstarter to our business, which it was because it was only two weeks ago that we sold those crossbred ewes for $421 and the Merinos for $327, which was very helpful. So that's one way we managed the drought with the livestock. So you guys have got a fairly clear driving purpose in life to raise your kids on a farm. Does that influence your ability to succeed, do you think? Like having that really clear drive and do you think that's important when, you, when you're running a business, particularly one that's got so many variables like climate and rainfall and markets? I think that it's really important in life that if you've got a goal or a dream, not to think that it's impossible because if you think it's impossible, you will never attempt to achieve it. So that was one of my goals in life or one of my dreams. And to get to this place where we're at now is like a dream come true. It's just like a dream come true. And those nights when I was laying under a baler at 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, on New Year's Eve and while everyone else is doing something else, you're out there busting your guts, trying to, trying to, you know, do the best you can to achieve your goal. It's, it was some of those goals that I've had from such a young boy that have driven Emma and I to get to this position that we're in today. Emma and I really love, and we think it's a God-given thing that we love to try to help other people as well. But you can't give if you don't already have. Well, I guess in terms of the word success, we consider that to be having a balanced life and having our priorities right with our family and not necessarily any more like in our younger days, pushing so hard that you might not see Jared for two or three days or whatever when he's out the back of somewhere doing some job just so that we can get past this next thing, but more now to spending more time with our kids and making sure that our family's prioritised. That's part of our story of our, yeah, our success and our farm, living on our farm is part of our family as well. So that's just 
an extra nice thing for us that we get to have our kids here as well and they love the lifestyle here so it's all sort of a package deal so do you have to set those firm boundaries or is it just that your family and your work-life balance is so in the forefront of your mind that it comes naturally intentionality is something that we've found really good with our family on friday nights no matter what's happening friday night is family fun night for our family so we will do it's dedicated family night doesn't matter what happens we might go camping or watch a movie or have lego wars or go and have a bonfire or something so everyone looks forward to family fun night and that's tonight so they're looking oh, forward to that. We're, we're staying for family fun night, right? <laughs> we're watching the dish tonight. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah, so there's we do have some set things with that because previously, for the first ten years of our marriage, Jared and I were leaders of a youth group on a Friday night, so teenagers. And so our children, our first four, grew up knowing that every Friday night we would go to youth group and help other young people. And after, in the nine and a half, nine and a half year point, some of our girls who would have been about uh, eight at the time, they said, how come you always have to go out on a Friday night? And we realized at that point that it was time for us to make that our family time and to finish what we were doing there because it had been really good, but it was time for us to have time for our family which is how Family Fun Night originated on Friday nights, which has been for the last six years, maybe. Is there a grand overarching plan? Like we've talked a lot about, you know, your strategy at the moment to try to value add sheep and obviously that's, you know, to generate income. But is, is there an underlying grand passion for the farming that say you want to be a cow-calf breeder or you want to do something that's maybe a bit more risky or a bit less income generating, but it's the grand plan one day when the debt's paid and... Uh, things are a bit um, more comfortable yeah that's a brilliant question that I've wrestled with for a long time because for starters to have some u-butte merino flock you've straight away got half a million bucks walking around your paddock that you cannot just liquidate straight away even if it's a drought you've got to keep a portion of them mm. so we've got to we Emma and I have aimed to keep things quite liquid so we can uh, cash in, cash out, make some pretty quick moves if you need to. But as far as the long-term plan with the livestock, we haven't got any U butte long-term plan, but I do believe that we are going to step it up considerably, especially the trading, and maybe get into trading lambs, buying lambs in March, April, and cashing out of them at the end of July. That's another plan that we've got in our in our mind. Keeping in mind, the last two years have slowed momentum considerably. You're not quite as risky when you've had a taste of difficult times, but we want to build like a drought lot or feedlot type system to be able to stock the farm with hundreds or thousands of sheep from that May, June, July period just to be able to grow kilos of meat for that period of time. That's one of our goals. And the other thing that I've thought about of late, Gillian, is my grain trader said, oh, canola prices, is, it's great at the moment, at 550 bucks. Well, five years ago, it was 500 bucks. 
And five years ago, lambs were making five or six bucks a kilo, and now they're nine, nearly 10 bucks a kilo. So in my opinion, to be able to achieve a reasonable return on assets managed on your farm, we need to be either growing a heck of a lot more grain per hectare or switching more into the sheep side of our business because that part is is on a similar trajectory as land prices, but grain prices are not. And we've only heard about it in the media and with China and bits and pieces of late about barley prices being low. And I wouldn't be surprised without being intentionally negative if we get to harvest and barley's worth 160 bucks a ton. Now that's, to me, that's absolutely pathetic. When I have a choice, am I gonna sell that store lamb for $160 or a whole ton of barley for 160 bucks? It seems to me as if it's a bit of a no-brainer. You guys obviously run a, a farm that's really quite versatile. You take advantage of different influences in the environment and the market and you're very innovative. Do you think that that adds to your resilience? I think that we have been forced to be flexible because we haven't had the ability to have quarter of a million tons of hay and barley in the silo to feed sheep and cattle for a massive period of time. I think we've, we've been forced to think very flexibly, even with the grain growing in the drier times, maybe like switching crops from say canola to barley and, and making some, trying to make changes to, to stem the bleeding so that you can try to make small profits because in in tough times it's not necessarily how much income you make it's often uh, you're aiming to see how little you can lose it's it's very important that to remember that most farmers produce about 60% of their net profit in three out of 10 years. So in order to produce a lot of money within three out of 10 years, you've got to be a bit flexible. You've got to be able to pour the stock on when you know there's a good season or when you know there's profitability in the stock. And you've got to be able to, with the cropping, you just cannot drop the ball. You've got to keep on your summer spraying You've, you can't skimp on your fertilizers. Do soil testing to know how much soil uh, fertilizer you need. A year like this, we've needed hardly nothing. So uh, one thing that's just super important is when it's time to kick a goal, you have to kick a goal or else the bank will kick your butt. So yeah. how, did you, how did you finance your dreams? You've obviously dealt with banks and different lenders over the years tell, yeah. me about, tell me about the money side of it the money side of the farm we have always always battled with having enough equity always now you could say well, why have you battled why didn't you just pay your farm off and have a hundred percent equity and then buy the next well my 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 answer to that is what's the point what's the point in paying your farm off if our farm's growing at a rate of 8% capital growth every year on average, and we're paying less than 4% interest, what's the point in paying it off? 
So we have always had low equity, which in turn means most banks won't look at us. We've tried and they say no. And um, because every time we've bought another block of dirt, we have come back to 30% equity. And when you're at 30% equity, most banks won't touch you. But I would encourage anybody that's wanting to have a bit of a go, not to be scared of borrowing a stack of money. But the only other thing you've got to do is when you borrow a lot of money, you've got to have the skills to know how you're going to repay it back. So I guess you've got to have the skills to, to know that you need to create a good operating return. And once you know you can do that, then you can step into having a, a lot of debt. And there are, there are curveballs that hit you like drought, mm. that it almost doesn't matter how skillful you are, they could possibly send you out the back door. And the other thing that is of interesting as well, Gillian, as far as finance is concerned, is farmers are notorious for not wanting to do much paperwork. And the reason I know that is because that's me to a T. <laughs> <laughs> And, but just as an example, in the last few months, we have received a $1 million loan from the government called a RIC loan. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very low interest. And that low interest has a huge advantage for us in our business at the moment in order to help us to make a profit and to pay off some more land. All right, so give me a bit of an idea of what your day involves. Well, generally, I wake up about 9am. No, only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, we get up. I'm usually out of bed by about 5.30, 5, 5.30, usually 5.30. And then I usually, um, go for a ride on my bike for 45 minutes or, or a run for 5Ks. Yeah, okay. And when I started this a few years ago, most people said once you do it after a month, your body will really love it. Well, I'm still waiting for that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so why do you do it if you don't enjoy it? What? Because it's, I think life, life is so short, but life is so long. And I think we've got to look after ourselves. And I've noticed that most people that are successful in business do that well. Mm. They, they, they do a bit of exercise, they don't work themselves to the bone and then uh, just crash in bed every night. They've got a routine. When I started this, my riding the bike and I make sure I read for half an hour every morning. When I started this, I honestly thought, this hour and 15 minutes I'm spending every morning is inhibiting me from doing my work outside. But I have discovered that you are better to work harder with your head than your hands. You'll definitely make more money. So if you can make better decisions by reading, you will be far more financial and happier and you will not have to work as many hours per day if you can educate yourself. And so what sort of things are you reading? Well, 
I love Rich Dad Poor Dad books. Um, I've I've just been reading a book called Strong Men in Tough Times. Another book by Max Licardo called Fearless. I just read any books that are going to help me out because I think if you want to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. And whether you're leading your Kelpie dog around the sheep yards or your family or your neighbours or you're the mayor of a, a town or whoever you are, there'll be someone following you. And I think it's hugely important to be able to, uh, to read, even though I didn't learn to read until late in my schooling. But I've disciplined myself to read and I understand now that it is hugely important to the success of my life to the success of my family and to the success of our business. Yeah, that's great. And the bike riding or the running, do you find that um, it really clears your mind or it allows you time to ruminate on and think about and things and make decisions or? Yes, that's so true. You get out there. I always try to go in the dark because you can't tell that there's frost on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> One day I was scooting along there and I come, I went one way and then on my way back, it was just daylight enough to see a thumping big dead kangaroo on the road. <laughs> I thought I'm glad I didn't hit that in the moonlight. But you do get a lot of thinking time. Mm. Farmers are doers, aren't they? They're mm. really good at doing, but they're yes. not too good at being and having that, yes. that clarity and that headspace. Yes. So that's yes. important. Yes. Well, thanks for um, your time today. It's been absolutely wonderful to get to meet you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. <laughs>